0: The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a US diplomat. AKA an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global change maker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired.
1: I think we're not honest enough about the difficult challenges that we're trying to take. So we're never transparent. We always talk about the best case study we have and the best beautiful photo we have. You know and we don't talk about the things that don't work and the failures because that would be not a good thing to do you know for funding and whatever but that's the wrong approach i think we've got to we've got to take those risks we've got to be open and honest about our failures and most importantly our learning so we can try things in different ways and that i think is how you make social change
0: Welcome, friends. Today we are here with a special guest, Matt Stevenson-Dodd. Matt is the managing director of Trust Impact, a data and impact consultancy that helps nonprofits and social impact organizations to measure and report impact from a more transparent, strategic, and pragmatic viewpoint. Matt was previously CEO of Street League, the UK's leading sport for employment charity, where he launched an innovative online impact dashboard showing a real-time transparent impact data, including all the young people Street League were not able to help. Welcome, Matt. I'm so happy that you're with us. And how are you? Where are you joining us from?
1: Hi, Oka. I'm really good, thanks. I'm joining you from North Wales in the UK. Um, yeah, it's a bit bit cold and frosty today, but, um, I'm I'm in good spirits.
0: Excellent. I like to start the conversation with a little bit of insight of why my guest inspires me because I've called this podcast Inspira. And in addition to career advice and stories, I, I like to weave in some inspiration. So Matt, I'm not sure if you know this. We may have chatted, you know, a few months ago in, in kind of reconnecting, but your name was really one of the first sport for development and peace names that I discovered back around 2012. I was actually living in London during the Olympics and Paralympics, and I actually had the opportunity to do a site visit to Street League, among a few other charities and and sports NGOs and it just really helped paint a picture of what sport can do for young people, especially regarding upskilling and employment and trust building. And the more that I learned about the space, the more I learned about how you were innovating the space in terms of data and measurement and transparency. And so I'm really privileged to stay connected with you after all of this time and just find out what you've been up to in the last 10 years, if not before that, and how your journey started and where your journey is going. Thank you. That's lovely. Maybe I can ask you to start off by sharing a little bit more about your career journey and perhaps what led you to focus on impact or on sport for social impact.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I think the probably key theme to my, uh, my career has been about working with young people um, all the way through. It's really inspired me. Um, I'm actually adopted myself and I've always um I've always sort of thought, what if I hadn't have been placed with a really great family? Uh, you know, and what if I hadn't been allowed to to reach my potential? And I think that's always really inspired me. So when i when I found sort of young people who who need that extra support and need need a better uh, you know somebody to sit alongside them and help them, that's been the theme of my my career. Um I think the other theme is I've I've always been a bit of a misfit. I've always been quite entrepreneurial. <laughs> uh, I started off working for the, for the local authority for the council and uh, they didn't like misfits and they don't like people <laughs> who don't fit in. So was, I, when I moved into the voluntary sector and um, in, into sort of you know working for charities, I just felt really at home. But I really wanted to try and push the boundaries all the time just to see whether we could create more social impact. Could we do things in a better way? Could we understand things better? And that led me into Sport for Development and then Impact Measurement and Transparency.
0: Wow, that's really interesting, and, and thank you so much for sharing a little bit of that, that personal reason, too. I find that in my conversations with people entering the social impact space, there can be this really real connection emotionally or personally to the mission of the work. And uh, whether that was because someone had a great experience with sport or a terrible experience with sport, or as you said, kind of feeling that support system and feeling uh, the support of family or coaches or teachers and so that that's really interesting and and important in your journey. So thanks again for sharing that. And I'm I'm curious what you were interested in back in the day. Did you envision yourself going on to serve as chief executive for three highly successful impact-driven organizations, including a social enterprise and two charities? And yeah, tell me more about maybe some of those earlier interests.
1: Yeah, so I've always been super ambitious, right? And I think, um, i often said to, uh, to people like there was always a mountain beyond the mountain you know so you'd you'd feel like i want to climb that mountain and i get to the top and then there'd be another one you know and I'd, I'd want to climb that one and um i think that that sort of drive and ambition really saw me through my my 20s my 30s um and it probably started to sort of dissipate more in my 40s t- to be more pragmatic about what i wanted to do um but but really uh, again I, I think i was really frustrated with the way The youth service worked as a a service for young people uh, from the local authority from the council. and really wanted to try and change it. So setting up the first social enterprise in in 1999, 2000. Yeah, that was that was really a sort of a freeing for me. I just thought I I, I could be free. Um, But I suppose that drive and ambition always thought I want to do more. I want to go further. Um, and eventually, you know, getting the job at Street League was just just the pinnacle of my career. I thought. So it was such an opportunity to do something at a bigger scale. And um, you yeah, know, but the, the work up towards that was, you know, including doing an MBA and, as, as you said, trying to trying to sort of always push myself to think, how can I go further to help more people, and how can I how can I really make that impact.
0: Mm. And you mentioned not only your ambition, but pushing the limits. And I've heard you talk about risk-taking as well. I'm curious if you can speak more to how that's helped you in your career. I mean, I'm making an assumption that's helped you. It's not always perfect, right?
1: I really think if you if you want to make social change, if you genuinely want to make it, you have to take some risks. Um, we, I don't think, if you look back over the history of let's take the UK, what, what's happened over the last 50 years, all these all these organisations all working so hard and yet we still have arguably more problems, right? So are we actually making the change that we need to make? Mm-hmm. And I think there's some fundamental issues here, which is that charities and social organisations generally don't take risks. They really try and, and, you know, sort of deliver what they're doing and they do some brilliant stuff, but generally risk-taking is not part of it because there's a sense that they've got to protect the the charity there's also I think a public perception that you shouldn't use charity money social enterprise money uh, to take risks you should be just delivering that so that doesn't move things forward as well and I think generally trying to find risk-taking people inside these organizations is is tricky but what we get as a result of that is a kind of status quo that just kind of rolls along every year and everything happens. And, you know, success is that we were financially successful and tick, and I've, I've sat in board meetings of several organisations I've been on the board of, you know, where most of the board meeting is about the money and 5% of it is about the impact. And, and I think this has sort of taken over charities. And then to compound all of this, I think we're not honest enough about, the difficult challenges that we're trying to take. So we're never transparent. We always talk about the best case study we have and the best beautiful photo we have, you know, and we don't talk about the things that don't work and the failures because that would be not a good thing to do. You know, for funding and whatever. But that's the wrong approach, I think. We've got to we've got to take those risks. We've got to be open and honest about our failures and most importantly, our learning. So we can try things in different ways. And that I think is how you make social change.
0: Mm, I love that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The the value of risk taking. And I'm wondering if perhaps people or organizations in the sector are are risk averse because of experiences where maybe they're talking about failures or maybe they're talking about their doubts and potentially they lose a a donor or a supporter because people do want to kind of believe in this incredible unrealistic power of sport right like it's so transformational which it can be but to your point an organization can really thrive and address problems more directly and more sustainably if we're not just sticking with the status quo but really reinventing systems in society and serving people in the ways that they need in thinking about street league specifically i would love to know how you got your foot in the door with the organization
1: yeah it's definitely the best job of my my career i took over 2010 so 2003 it started um, founded by a guy called Damien Hatton who was working with uh, homeless people and using football uh, to do all sorts of, of, of brilliant things um, so personally I absolutely love sport I, I run I, I scuba dive I, um, I, I, you know, I mountain bike I do all sorts of, of sports but I'm not the biggest football fan in the world so I, I don't have a season ticket for a, for a football club um I, I love I love playing football and taking part in football, but I, I don't sort of I'm not a, fan, a fanatic. And I thought that was going to be detrimental to me joining Street League. So when I went for the interview and there was sort of a three stage interview, I'm I thinking I'm really good on the on the, you know, the social side and what what uh, what Street League does. But I, I, if they ask me any question about the Premier League or <laughs> you know any, any footballer, Or anything i'm going to just fall over you know so i spent the weekend with my with my best friend just talking about football i said tell me everything i need to know about football and no uh, interesting no question came up in the interview process because and this is what is really fundamental to street league is it's about the power of football as an engagement tool but what's most important is what you can do with that with that sport what you can do with that engagement and you know where i i would i've been a youth worker you know uh, Ten years before I was, I joined. Uh, I joined Streetly. That would take like six months to build a relationship of that quality in a youth club. On the pitch, you can do that in days. And I, I was just amazed to watch how quickly these relationships built. Uh, but I was just thinking, my God, you know that 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 young person is hanging off every single word that coach is telling them. What can we do with that relationship to help that young person? What can we do to move that? that forward. And that's what really inspired me. So I went through the interview process and and thankfully I was selected. Uh, I took over from Damien in 2010 uh, and then I stayed right through until uh, the beginning of 2019. so, So eight and a half years.
0: Quick break here to highlight what I consider to be a fabulous resource that I've created for any listeners out there interested in learning more about the sport for development and peace sector. You've come to the right place. In addition to Inspira podcast episodes that you can listen to, I've created a written resource that you can read, which currently has over 90 items I've curated from my own experience and vetted with other experts in the field. These include databases to find award-winning organizations, links to reports, books, and research, as well as recommended newsletters and recorded webinars, all Sport4Dev related. I encourage you to have a look. You can find this resource by visiting my link tree listed in each episode's show notes. Then clicking Erica's Global Resource Hub. That's right, Erica's Global Resource Hub. If you like what you read and what you hear, I'd love it if you could give Inspira a five-star review on your chosen podcast platform and write a kind review. That would be so energizing for me and it would help Inspira reach more ears. Thanks, and back to the show! One thing I also remember from my site visit at Street League I at the time, so this was a while ago, it was really important that the staff had also experienced the program or like graduated from the program so that they really understood the challenges facing young people in the program. Did you find that that really allowed the the culture of the organization to understand and serve the youth?
1: Yes, I mean, undoubtedly, I think but if I think about the sort of eight 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 and a half years I was there at Streetly, the first four years were really built around that model of um, of helping people who had been participants, if they wanted to, to come back and work for us. And it was really interesting. You know, if you put a young person from South London who's been, who's grown up there, you know, grown up in in the situations that the young people we're working with has, it's, it's just so much more powerful than any of us who haven't had that experience going into that community and, and you know, uh, just being able to sort of speak with an authentic and, and real, real sort of voice that, that says, I've been in the same place as you and now I want to help you. Um, I thought that was, that was tremendously powerful. Interestingly, as Streetly grew and we had more government contracts and more things sort of driving us, we we were forced to move away from that model. We we actually had to find people who had a level of qualification that the government would approve. And that, I think, was was quite detrimental to what Street was actually trying to do on on the ground, because all those people who had brilliant life skills and and lived experience of, of where, you know, the young people we were working with, suddenly found it really tricky to get to the level of qualification. And we had to go through quite a big sort of internal transformation. Um, to bring those people to, along with us. And some of them didn't come with us because they just couldn't make that thing. And I, looking back, I think, you know, sometimes that sort of drive for, I want to help more people, I want to grow, can be detrimental because it it, it kind of creates a different culture in the organisation where you, I, I was always, I always thought we've moved away a little bit from the grit of youth work, you know, the, the thing that's a bit gritty and a bit tricky and a bit difficult towards this more sort of slick, corporate style model which is more about driven by you know funding contracts and and i often wondered if we'd lost that sort of on the ground you know real grit that that i think is super super important interestingly now as chair of football beyond borders fbb they have this all the time they have amazing youth workers and i keep saying to jack you know we've got to protect that that is the that is just the most amazing thing
0: that's really interesting. I, I don't think in any of my conversations that type of challenge has risen up and perhaps what you're speaking to is are the challenges associated with scaling or with growing and this desire to multiply and extend impact, whether it's within kind of the starting location or extending to other locations, because As you and I know, a sport for development organization or even a social impact charity, just because it works in one location with one population doesn't mean you can necessarily scale it to work in a different community or even well, especially a different country. So, um, yeah, that's. That's really interesting and, and hopefully helpful for people to keep in mind that the heart of an organization's culture and the community leaders that they involve are really key to success. And and I've seen that from my experience as well, just the, the power and importance of community leaders and really those touch points that are people who are interacting with the youth, if that's the target population. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: And so let's get into a little bit more about monitoring and evaluation, kind of sticking to Street League, if it's okay. I remember, and I mentioned hearing about this at the time, and I think there was an article in The Guardian about your work, and the it, it was like a, a revelation, that failure, you know, we can learn so much from it, right? And I'm wondering, like, did you expect that kind of response where people were like, oh my goodness, or were you kind of like, why aren't people like, Paying attention to failures, like well, how did that experience go, when you really like introduce that concept, or or maybe continue to talk about that concept and and embed it into into your tools and measurement systems at Street League.
1: Yeah, well, I I hoped that people would like go, wow, this is amazing, but I I, I wasn't sure that, that was going to happen. I mean, the, the the background to this is when I joined Street League, we were we were sort of you know putting out big statements like we you know we helped two thousand, three thousand people, you know. And I remember saying internally, how do we know? How do we know that that is 3,000 people? And they were like, well, because it was 2,800 last year and it's a sort of guess that we're going to grow, you know, by a couple of hundred every year. And there was no real, like, no real sort of rigour to the the numbers. And we'd survey 100 people every year out of the 2,000 and we'd ask them questions. And, of course, you know, 10 of them gave up smoking. So therefore 10% of participants with street always give up smoking every year. It's just really not the right, you know, basis for making any statement. So the the whole idea was to sort of invest in, in monitoring the journey of every young person. So so we, we you know it cost us quite a bit to put in a, a decent uh, crm system and database and we just tracked the whole journey of every young person from from saying hello to them right through to did they get a job did they stay in a job for six months or more and it was so interesting was so interesting to see how uh you know how their journeys went and they're all different you know most of the time we were successful sometimes we weren't why why was that i got really interested in. and so i got about 20 2015 2016 and i said to my chair we've invested so much money in this system right and we put in we've now put out very very accurate statements about how successful or unsuccessful we are but it it just feels like it makes no difference whatsoever in the sector because you you know the whole sector is just putting out endless sort of numbers and it was all getting a bit lost and I, i was also struck by the fact that every annual report that i read of another organization was only success you know, so you, we were brilliant. You turn the next page, we were amazing. You know, we did this really well. This is a lovely case study. This happened; it was brilliant. And I, I said to the chair, uh, Mike, who's is a, a brilliant uh, leader as well. I said to him, I would really like to do something quite different this year. I'd like to publish an annual report that talks upfront about failure rather than talking about success upfront. Um, and so we drafted it. We took it to the board. The board's reaction was just brilliant. They like several members of the board were. this is the the weirdest idea that you've ever had why would you <laughs> why do you ever you know I think they knew that I was a risk taker but they were they were saying yeah you know, like you said why, why would you put failure out there voluntarily why would you tell funders that we haven't done very well here Um. so uh, we then kind of conversation went on and um, one, one of the board members said what I really like about this is when I read it I read the failure part and then I believed all of the success part because you were so open and honest up front. And that swung the conversation then. And uh, the board agreed that we should do this. But the stipulation was that I had to ring every funder and just check that they would be okay uh, with with us putting this out, which is which is fair enough. And amazingly, when I picked up the phone, I was thinking this is going to be a really t- tough conversation. Every single funder said, this is brilliant. This is what we wanted to see from organisations so long ago we really you know we never get honest answers from organizations when we say can you tell us what what is going wrong what can we help with because there's this kind of standoff between funders and and and, and organizations where it's like we have to just tell you good news and um, so so yeah we published it i wrote an article for the guardian and um, it was really well received but interestingly uh so first of all our funding increased Stakeholder interest increased, street leagues brand increased, everything went went up. And, and I thought, everybody's going to do this now. This is going to be the first of lots of people doing it. And they didn't. It just didn't happen. And that that really surprised me. There's only one or two examples of charities that, that did this. And everybody else carried on with the same same old thing.
0: Why do you think more organisations didn't see the value of that?
1: So I think the old way of doing things still works so there's still a kind of let's tell a good story and you give us the money and we'll report back in a year's time and we'll tell you everything went really well and you give us some more money and then we do the same again I think that sort of still works um I think it's dissipating I think people people are starting to change what the what their expectations are I I think people looked at it and thought I'm nowhere near On the database side or the impact side or the measurements to really be able to confidently do this so this is like years off for us i think there's a lot of people like that i think a lot of people thought impact is super complicated and it's a little department that works you know way way away from the senior team and we just do what we're doing and then we hope that they're going to produce an impact report for us the connections are not there into where it should be in strategy so I think all of those things sort of compound the fact that you've got to be really confident then to take that step forward and say it didn't work. The, the other thing I'd say is there are different types of transparency. So um, we were really honest about when we failed to help young people, but you could argue it in a virtuous way. So you could say we took a risk on on those young people who maybe wouldn't have got a job, but we we tried anyway, and we felt that was the right thing to do. So that turns it into a, into a positive, into a virtue. If you if I'd have said, and this didn't happen, but if I'd have said we spent thirty thousand pounds on a website that was a failure, that's more of a sort of internal decision that's not been right. So there, there are different types of of how you can do this, and because we were the first to go out there and say. We are the first to say it's it's uh, be transparent. And say we failed. We felt that the virtuous approach, when we could actually turn it around and say it, it is a, it is a positive, felt like the best first step.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really really powerful. And to your point, or maybe to the perception of other organizations, it's really important to have that foundation of metrics at the core of your reporting and to be able to identify what the failures are and what the virtuous or, or useful failures are to share. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's a, hopefully a great transition to talk about trust impact and kind of what experiences and insights and passions you took from your time at street league and in your career to really like double down on this concept of measuring impact and led you to, to build trust impact.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, the year after we did the uh, the transparent annual report, again, sort of being risk taker, we thought we need to push this further. So we um, we found a way to um, link our database to a Power BI dashboard on on the website at Streaming. So we published the first real time impact dashboard. Although we only updated it every month, so it wasn't exactly real time, but it was it was for way way beyond what 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 we'd seen before. And it effectively put the annual report out of date straight away. So you always got a 12 month view. It was very transparently laid out. And our, our view was that we shouldn't be trying to uh, convince you that we're successful. We should be just laying out all of the facts and you decide whether you think this is a successful or unsuccessful organization, you, you decide. And when we did it, we also felt we're never going to shut the box once we've opened it. So once once we publish our impact live, there will be bad years and if there's a bad year it's going on the website you know this was this was the sort of tricky thing that you have to go through and talk about so my last couple of years at Streetly I just thought this is the thing that I really love right? I, I love impact I love innovation I love challenging I love risk-taking and I remember saying to to Emma my wife like if only there was a job that I could do that would be that you know because the obvious line for me would be to go and be chief executive of another charity and a bigger one and then the, next, the mountain behind the mountain and you carry on. And I just thought, I want to try and do something different. So January 19, I uh, I left Street League. I said to Mike, I'm going to go out and try and do this on my own um, and set out, just me, um, and uh, an idea that I might sit alongside my fellow chief executives, management teams, and try and help them find a more pragmatic way to do impact. So, you know, saying like the impact teams are often somewhere over just to bring them right into the centre and say, impact should be strategy for you. If you're a socially minded organisation, what else are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be doing impact, right? That is is what you're here for. So let's bring it front and centre into strategy. Let's, you know, make sure you're all very, very clear about what you're trying to do. And then rather than trying to measure 200 different things, let's measure three or five things that really matter to your organization. And I, I sort of took that philosophy, that kind of impact first, keep it simple, be creative, that, those three golden rules to organizations and brilliantly and thankfully, they, they wanted some help with that. So uh, we've, we've grown since then, we've, we're nearly four years old now. Uh, we have 30 uh, people working with us. And we've worked with about 65 organizations. It's just been an amazing journey. I'm I'm so proud.
0: What are some early successes uh, that that you or your team have seen and how you've been able to support organizations in their own impact?
1: Sure, sure. So, I mean, we've been really fortunate to work with with some some very big organizations in the UK, like RSPCA and, and YMCA. Um, and also some smaller organisations. But I'll, I'll tell you about a sport-related one, actually, which, which I really love, uh, which is Ellen MacArthur, you know, the Yachtswoman. Uh, the uh, she set up a, a cancer charity, Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, and they're based on the Isle of Wight um, in the UK. Um, so they take young people post-cancer treatment on a five-day sailing, sailing trip, either in, in uh, the Isle of Wight in the south or in Largs in Scotland and the idea is that you know this is a sort of turning point for the young people so we worked with uh, frank is the ceo and the team over a two two to three year period and we went through the whole sort of thing we went right back to the core purpose and said what are you actually trying to do here and and really interestingly where we got to frank frank sort of mentioned this thing when we were just in passing that the the, the trip the boat trip is like a catalyst it's like flicking a light switch that you can say to the young person You've experienced real difficult and trauma, traumatic experience through your cancer treatment. But now is the time to think about the future and what your life could be. And that sort of switch, that, that change. And so where we got to was that the, their, their, their whole purpose was to help young people believe in a brighter future. And so you can start to frame around that. So what, what does that mean? How would we measure that? And where we landed on was, was looking at um, well being and the Warwick-Edinburgh uh, well-being scales so seven questions of, of, of well-being and um what we tr- what we've sort of set up with them was to measure this two weeks before the young person goes on the trip the day after the trip and then three months later as a follow-up and we've just had the first season's data come in so we, we've created an automated questionnaire that goes to the young person it's followed up by a staff member if they don't respond um, and then the data just comes live onto the dashboard that we built. And you can see on every single measure, uh, wellbeing might start a little bit low. It then peaks the day after the trip, as you'd expect, and then it drops away, but it doesn't drop away as low as it was uh, two weeks before the trip. So there's been a marked change by the intervention that Anna MacArthur Cancer Trust has, has made. And to see that live on a dashboard and see it changing as, they, uh, you know, as the results come in, it's just super powerful. The first time you sort of look at it and you think, this is an organisation that is obviously and clearly making an impact.
0: Mm, That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it makes me think that the ways in which we can use data or measure data has certainly evolved over the last 20 years. What have you seen in terms of that evolution throughout your career, specifically with measurement and data tools, and perhaps what opportunities exist now for people or organizations that didn't exist a while ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've definitely been on a journey as a sector, haven't we? I mean, yeah, I can remember where it was all on bits of paper and, uh, you know, you're trying to sort of Sometimes it
0: still is, but yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) undoubtedly that. Yeah, Um, so I I mean, I think, and you're right. You know, various organisations are different parts of the journey, but you know that that sort of bits of paper evolved into Excel spreadsheets or Google uh, Google Sheets. That then evolved into a server in the corner of the the office where you would each have access to that to that information, and hopefully, you know, people stored it, and that's evolved into sort of cloud based. Databases where you can access those from anywhere in the world. Um, and now there's sort of things you can do with data, which I'll talk about in a moment. That I mean, the the, the most fundamental and important thing though, and you know, you've seen this, I'm sure Erica, is, is what goes into the database is the most important thing. And nobody ever seems to take away fields from a database. They always get added. So you might start with the best <laughs> intentions of we only wanna know 20 things. And 10 years later, it's 2000 things. It's just, we worked with some, some clients that were trying to trying to ask a thousand questions of the oh, beneficiaries. Goodness. I don't even know where you start with that. It must take weeks to get that information. And of course, then the data's patchy and, you know, you, you, you can't analyze it. It's really tricky. So just a point on making sure that your data is right, whether it's on a paper or whether it's on a cloud-based server, you, you've got to make sure that you are asking the right stuff. What's really exciting me now, though, is what you can do with that data. So a lot of organisations still see their data as being encased within their organisation, and somebody might have to go into that database once a month, pull out the data to make a report for the board or for the senior management team or for a funder. What you can do now is live stream that data. So Trust Impact, we built a platform called uh, Connect Mix Share, and the idea is that that connects to your database and then live streams the data to a, a, a Power BI visualization, which is a live, live report, or direct to your website, or to another user, maybe a funder, or if you're in a federation, to the head of the federation. So you can, you can sort of forget about it. You know, You just do your job, you put your data into your database, and that data is live shared to all sorts of places. That, I think, is when it's really powerful. also when you can then mix in government data with that so we can get live stream from the indices of multiple deprivation which is you know measure of poverty in the uk so you can you can look at the postcode of your beneficiary in in real time you can compare that with the government's data on whether they live in a, a deprived community and you can display that real time straight in straight in front of you and see who are we working with where are they you can map it you know, it's really, really exciting to me, that sort of sharing of data rather than it just being encased in something. Mm-hmm.
0: And what advice might you give to organizations who perhaps can't financially afford a trust impact or perhaps even employ a full-time staff to focus on m and data? Yeah,
1: so um, there's, there's loads you can do for free. Um, so one of the exercises that we do with clients, all clients, whether they're big or small, is we ask everybody in the senior team and the board, or it might be if you're a small organization, the whole organization, but it usually works with about 20 people, and um, to describe the purpose of the organization in eight words or fewer. So how, can you give me a sentence that says, this is what the purpose of our organization is? Interestingly, we've then built an algorithm that, that uh, crunches all that together and gives a score and alignment. But if you look at the statements that everybody gives, you'll find, and we found the average alignment is about 45%, only 45%, that because organisations evolve over time and because different people come in with different views and you never really go back and revisit the purpose question, people have a different view of what the purpose is. So if you try and measure all of those versions of success, you're going to get really complicated very quickly. So that is a starting point, which is absolutely free to do. Go and go and sort of ask those questions. We've got a tool on our website that's free if people want to use that. Um, you, can, you can then sort of start that process to say, can we come up with a unified eight-word purpose statement that really talks to what we do? And, and it can't be we help people. It has to be quite focused. You have to be able to bring it down. You know, Ellen MacArthur's example, the ability to believe in a brighter future. It's really clear. know so they know they're using sailing to do that and that's their that's their absolute purpose so everything's focused what's really powerful about that though is that their internal conversations then are all about that purpose why are we doing that it's not meeting our purpose Why, why 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 are we not doing this you know what could we do to make that purpose happen more who do we need around us to make that purpose happen where should we put our resources all of those things can drive really good decisions for the business and then You ask a very simple question, which is, what are the three to five indicators that would tell us if we are successfully achieving that purpose or not? And don't try and measure 20 things. What are the three, top three things that would really tell you about that purpose? And that fundamentally is the work that we do with organisations. We're we're respectfully provocative, we'll challenge, we'll help them through those processes. But if you're a small organisation, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have those questions and answer them yourselves.
0: I'll ask you to put your CEO hat on again. And I'm really curious about your reflections, keeping in mind your insights from Trust Impact now, your insights from Street League and your insights from your career. In terms of the sport for development and peace sector, what do you hope to see from the sector in the next 10 years in terms of impact?
1: So, my reflections on on sport is it's probably the most powerful tool I've ever seen to make change, and whether that's football or rugby or dance or you know that, frankly, the way that it can engage people is just is just so immensely powerful. But I don't think we've really helped ourselves. So we've we've always sort of talked up the power of sport, and there's almost this sort of little space in the middle of everybody's theory of change that is a bit of magic happens and then out the end some you know something occurs and I don't think we've ever really honestly sort of explored that so I would really you know want to see the sport for development sector actually being able to prove that sport is the thing that makes the change we all fundamentally believe it is we've all got great anecdotes to say oh, you know, I worked with this person. It was so powerful. And we've all, anybody who plays sport, you know the effect it has on you. But can we actually prove that? And that's what I'd love to see. More more proper data showing that sport compared with other things is the thing that makes that change. Mm,
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be extremely beneficial to the sector of course and I know that there's researchers out there looking at these types of topics and uh yeah hopefully hopefully we can see those types of things in the future what's next for you Matt what are some things that you're excited about
1: so um, we're doing we're doing loads of stuff on on live data at the moment which I I think you know it's like just starting to scratch the surface of something that is really powerful so um you know, applications might be, like I was saying, uh, you know, dashboards and, and things like that. But you can go beyond that. You can go into um, into analysing real-time data to look at trends and look at where your resource is going. You can go into AI. I mean, there's some really interesting things happening in AI at the moment about, you know, imagine being able to ask your database to just give you a report and it, and it, and it just gives you the report you want through through AI, through natural language processing, it's just absolutely fascinating that we could be moving just way, way beyond where we are now. And it feels like the sport for development sector, the charity sector is a little way behind on this. And I think that's what's exciting me at the moment is to help those organisations catch up to where business is because, you know, you, you can do predictive modelling, you can do all sorts of things that, that you know, we've got an amazing data scientist in our team. We, you know, I think if he was just able to, to, to just fly and let go, you could just say, Go and do some really amazing stuff. Data is so, so powerful and it's going to be here and, and a major part of what we're trying to do. I mean, imagine in real time if you knew what was and wasn't working for your organisation as, as you're looking at it. So you try something and you look at the data and see whether it's whether it's actually made the difference you think it is. I think we're still too much in this kind of gut feeling is it the right thing? And good feeling is never always right. It's it sort of gives you a guide, but it's never reliable. You know, you've got to I think expand that out with with, with data, and that that is really exciting for me.
0: Mm. I, I'm wondering. Quick follow up question: Have you used data or measurement? in your own life or in your own career to reflect on, you know, I won't put you on the spot the ways that maybe you failed, but just kind of in evaluating or thinking about your trajectory or your future.
1: Really good question. I, I I think that I've self-analyzed a lot of my career to understand what I did well and what I didn't do well. And that's been particularly useful being chair of football beyond borders who you know when i joined two years ago it felt like it was in similar space to where street league was in 2010 they were you know very ambitious very well uh, run organization founded by two brilliant people jasper and and jack and you know really wanted to drive forward and it was really useful for me to reflect back on the eight years of growth that we had at Streetly, which was phenomenal growth, sometimes forty percent a year, um, and think what went right and what didn't go right about that. So that sort of challenge to to think about, yeah, so, I mean, whether that sort of you know is is the equivalent of data analysis, I don't know, but it, <laughs> you know, I think being able to analyse yeah. trends, thoughts, you know, results even, because um, undoubtedly Streetly was very very successful. But could it have been better? Could we have done things in different ways? Yes, absolutely.
0: Now that we know more about our guests' career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Matt tell me about your band and your interest in music. I know in the background right now I can see a few guitars. Uh tell me where does that come from and are you still in a band?
1: Uh yes. Um so I absolutely love music. It's my uh, my first love. Um I was really lucky um in uh 1995 to to get a chance to be in a band with a with a um a few record deal offers and, and what? things like that. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just an amazing experience. When I did my post-grad uh, youth, mm-hmm. I joined a band as a bass player. and But ever since, I've played in, in bands, and now I play in a, a covers band here in North Wales called The Bright Lights. Um, and given my age, um, we, we kind of specialise in 90s indie.
0: That's incredible. Well, I was going to mention this after our recording, but I'm going to be in the UK next month. So if the bright lights are playing, you know, <laughs> let me know because it sounds <laughs> sounds like a Coming good soon. time. <laughs> what are some uh, songs that you cover?
1: Okay, so we, we would do like some Smiths uh, stuff. So we would do Happy Mondays, uh, Stereophonics. Uh, we do, do a little bit of 80s stuff. So um, Peter Gabriel, The Cure. Interestingly, My seventeen-year-old son loves uh, loves that era too, and he comes and uh, he comes and helps us out with the band. So it's it's really nice.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, I know you like a good challenge. You mentioned to me scuba diving. What does it feel like to scuba dive, and what are you going to do once you pass that test this weekend?
1: <laughs> I have to say, it's a revelation to me scuba diving. It's just it's just so brilliant. That moment that you're under the water and for for the 30 or 40 minutes that you're you're there is is the most mindful experience i i've i've ever had i think it's the one time when i can totally switch off and it's probably because you have to really concentrate on doing it right you know it's a bit of a hostile environment if you take the regulator out of your mouth so that concentration but but aligned with the fact that you're floating and it's so beautiful to swim with fish and to do all sorts of things with the marine environment and in a place that not many people will see um it's just so beautiful i've I've absolutely fallen in love with it um and yeah so so hopefully this weekend i will i will qualify as an instructor um because i I love teaching and i love um i love helping others have that experience so yeah that that's uh, that's all ahead of me this weekend
0: Mm, love that. Well, you know, in a few years when I officially, you know, hypothetically moved to the UK and I want to take off scuba, you can definitely be my instructor because it's been on my mind, well, not scuba, but just marine life because I mentioned to you, you know, I grew up around the ocean and it's just, it's an amazing world to explore. Um, and what you said also reminds me of the time when I took surfing lessons in South Africa. It was probably the only day of my life where I, or the only like hour of my life where I could focus on just one thing because if you have any other thoughts you know you're going to fall down and <laughs> get hurt or <laughs> go under the water
1: <laughs> it's so true it's so true I think that you know there's, there's quite a lot of lessons for for, for life isn't it that you, you do just spend all of your life trying to do three or four different things at once and think about different things and you know being being, being in the moment is so difficult um, and you know scuba diving or, or surfing puts you in that situation where you have no choice but to think about that.
0: Mm. I think you mentioned that sport itself, at least on your street league journey, wasn't kind of a, a part of your identity or, you know, you were like rooting for some teams. But if someone asks you, who is your team, what might you say? Do you have one?
1: Um, so I, I, wherever I've lived, I've, I've kind of been to see the local team and I yeah. live near Wrexham at the moment. Oh, now, have you when... watched the show? Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't watched it. Is, is it worth it?
1: Yeah, it's it's brilliant. So you you imagine like this is a this is a small town in North Wales and suddenly Ryan Reynolds pulls up and buys the club. You know, this is like quite major, major change. (laughs) I mean, whenever I've been, you could you could literally walk and have a chat with the manager. You know, I mean, it's just such a small club. So for for that to happen to Wrexham is an amazing thing.
0: Matt, what advice might you give to folks interested in breaking into sport for development and peace and making a career in it?
1: So I would say it's it's a phenomenal space to, to enter. And you don't have to love sports to come into this world. And in fact, uh, somebody said to me, probably the fact that you don't love football actually helped you focus more on doing what needed to be done the street and um, many of my many of my friends just anecdotally were, were absolutely dismayed that I got to go to the World Cup or you know <laughs> I, I, I've met Pele you know these are like these are like major things and I'm just like oh hi you know you're a really nice person <laughs> you know it's, it's a little bit so wasted on on me uh, where somebody else could have had that that lovely opportunity to meet their heroes but I um, mean so so the point being you don't have to love sport I think what you have to love is the power of sport to to make that that change so that's number one number two I think you know it's always just about getting yourself in the right place and volunteering taking opportunities um I spent six months volunteering when I started as a youth worker just to prove that I could do this you know and almost to prove it to myself as well to see can I can I actually do this job can I can I live in this world I know that volunteering is not easy for people if you've got a full-time job or you want to just kind of make move but there are things you can do i think to really sort of help the organization understand that you are the right person to come in and and why should they take a risk on you and you know being that person who's super enthusiastic is a doer runs towards the fires is you know i will help and you know that that that's how organizations become really powerful if you have a very clear purpose and loads of those people leaders at all levels of the organization who are just doing and moving this thing forward that's that's where everything's powerful so i think if you can prove that you're that sort of person you know i in my last job i did this i moved this from here to there i made this change i think that is what what organizations need
0: what is one thing that you hope listeners remember from our conversation today
1: the one most important thing i think is is around purpose I, I would say we, we we often lose sight of purpose we just do what we do all the time uh, it's just so important to me i think to, to understand are we all agreed that what we're trying to do and and that we're not trying to do everything and this this really worries me as well i think organizations try and just grow and grow and grow outwards like in in width and we've got to see this as an ecosystem a, a jigsaw puzzle We've only got one piece in the jigsaw puzzle and there are loads of pieces in the sport for development world. Why Why should we try and be the whole puzzle? We don't have to be. We could be experts at one piece of that puzzle that helps the other parts of the puzzle complete the whole picture. So that, that sense of what is the purpose, how focused it is, I think is the thing that I'd like to leave people with because I think that will make real change in the sector if we get our heads around that and we think, okay, how how are we doing that are we the most purposeful we can be
0: and if anyone has questions about that i believe they can contact you or trust impact to figure out their purpose uh how can our audience support you or your work or get involved or benefit from trust impact moving forward
1: yeah i mean we'd, we'd love to, to speak to anybody and and you know if people have been uh inspired by the uh, your inspirer Uh, podcast today then uh, you know i would very much very happy to talk to 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 anybody um trustimpact.com is our website and contact details are on there um yeah just i'm I'm just fascinated i think by by the ways people are doing this and how we can bring it together so we're always looking for you know inspirational ideas ourselves and and other organizations that we can highlight and and see good practice
0: Mm. Wonderful, to bring it all home full circle, Matt, who or what inspires you?
1: So I'm always, always really inspired by people who get out and just do something. And I think it's those people that see something that needs to change and then they do something about it. Cause it's that action that is really hard. And you know, I, I I think about people like Jack Reynolds at Football Beyond Borders, Frank at Alan McCarthy. You know, people who've just gone and gone and made something happen. And um, there's there's so so many people in the world, and I'm always just inspired when I meet somebody, it, you know, enough to sort of, to say I would love to give some of my time to help to help them, because that's where I was, you know. And without that sort of support, it's really tough to get things going, particularly in in a climate where funding's really tricky and to convince people that this is a good idea. But unless we have those change makers, unless we have the, the doers, the people are going to get, uh, go out and take risks, then uh, we're, we're not going to change the world. And I, I think when I, when I see those people and I am fortunate enough to meet those people and you see them in large organisations and small organisations and people who want to try and just break out and do something, that, that always really, really inspires me.
0: Matt, thank you so much for your time today and your energy and especially your reflections. I feel like every question I asked, you would be amazing at pulling out what is interesting to you and what insight did you learn and just being really reflective and, and helpful for me and hopefully people listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller-Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three, so here goes. Number one, follow the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Number two, share your feedback with me through the listener survey listed on that link tree. And number three, tell just one friend about this podcast so they can give it a listen too. And do I have any overachievers out there? I've got a bonus action step, which is to consider supporting me and making sure this passion project prospers. So number four, follow the link to buy me a coffee. That would be pretty amazing. Until next time, stay inspired.